Now, I've been talking about using the passage of Scripture or the preaching portion in terms of the purpose for which it was given. How foolish it is to use a coin to screw something with when you could use a screwdriver. We ought to use something for the purpose it was designed to serve. Otherwise, as I said originally, you will be inefficient in what you do and probably ineffective unless the Spirit of God determines to do something through your message in spite of you. Today we're going to move on from talking about the lecture stance as over against the preaching stance, where when you lecture, the preacher speaks to the congregation about the Bible. Uh, Back there in the old days when God used to be at work in his world, as over against the preacher who really preaches rather than lectures, who speaks to the congregation about themselves in relationship to God and their neighbors from the Bible. And that means that the Bible becomes a contemporary book. He uses this book as what indeed it is, a message from God to his people, every bit as fresh and relevant and new as it was when it was written to the Corinthians or the Colossians or whoever it may have been. And that is a tremendous difference. When you view your sermon that way, it affects everything else you do. For example, as we talked this morning of the format of a sermon, there is a format that goes along with the lecture stance And there is a format that goes along with the preaching stance. You can use the word outline if you prefer, but uh, format is our modern term since computers. And when we're talking about the format that many people have been taught to use, the outlines that they produce, they sound something like this. Title, The Corinthians' Gifts. That's what will appear on the bulletin or in the newspaper as the title of the message. Under that, you will hear such things in the outline as the source of the Corinthians' gifts, the nature of the Corinthians' gifts, the purpose of the Corinthians' gifts. And after the man has talked about the Corinthians' gifts from these various aspects, he may, either at the end of each section or at the end of the message, tack on some applicatory uh, message, oh, by the way, here's what it has to do with you. But you see, what he's been talking about is, in the past, the Corinthians' gifts, the source of the Corinthians, the nature of the Corinthians, the function of the Corinthians' gifts. That's long ago and far away. And he has also been talking about gifts. He has not been talking about the people in front of him. He's been talking about gifts. And he's been talking in abstract language, the source, the nature, 
the purpose of the Corinthians' gifts. Wonderful passages of the Scripture that are throbbing with life and full of juice. He takes and he wrings out all the juice and throws out the husk, nature, source, purpose. Words like that. Instead of the vibrant way in which the word was presented to people originally. And he thinks he's done something really great. Actually, you could take some three-by-five cards and write a few abstract terms like nature, purpose, source, function, whatever, on those terms and just shuffle them around and use a different group each week if that's what you like to do. It really doesn't get you very far, and people don't remember those words. They don't really help, and they abstract and destroy quite concrete and vivid language in which the Scripture was given to us originally. What can we do if we really want a preaching format that matches a preaching stance in which we are concerned about bringing the message of God from his word to our people as a living thing to them today? Well, you don't do any less less exposition. You don't do any less understanding and laying out of the text for the congregation than you would under the lecture format. But you do it from an entirely different orientation. You do it as a message, as I've been saying, to your congregation from God today. And here's what it might look like if we translate from the lecture format into the preaching format. Let's take that title that you print or publish in the paper, The Corinthians' Gifts. Long ago, far away, abstract, and talking about gifts, not people. Suppose we translate that, and there are a dozen different ways you could do it, but suppose we translate that into using your gifts. That very title begins to preach, you see. All right. I'll tell you, brother, we Presbyterians don't get too much response like that. And when you give that to me, it's like saying, sick them to a dog. (laughs) We love it. We love it. So using your gifts, using your gifts. Already, you see, that title preaches. It's talking to people about themselves and about the gifts that God has given to them and what they're supposed to be doing with those gifts. The people are involved, even from the very title, in what you're up to. And then we take that first point, the source of the Corinthians' gifts. We translate it into a preaching format, and it comes like this. God gave you gifts. You see, that preaches. You're talking to people in front of you about themselves in relationship to God. And what you're saying is a message to them, even from the first point. You don't have to tack on some application later on. The whole sermon becomes an application when you bring God's message in that form to his people. All right. And then take that nature of the Corinthians' gifts. Let's translate that over into a preaching format. Instead of the nature of the Corinthians' gifts, God gave you gifts to use. They were gifts that had a a reason for being given, a purpose, a design. 
God gave you those gifts not to put on some shelf, look at, to hold on tightly and, and keep to yourself and, and uh, sort of enjoy for your own benefit, but to, to use, you see. And then let's take that last one, the purpose of the Corinthians' gifts. God gave you gifts to use in blessing others. They're not just to be used for you, but they're for the whole body. Now, you see, all the way through, you're talking to people. You're talking about their relationships to God and to one another. Let me give you a clue as to how you can begin to do this. Go back and look at some of your messages that you've prepared in the lecture format as the books on preaching tell us to do, where you have become long ago and far away, back in the days of the Amalekites and the Corinthians and so on, where you have been talking about things abstractly, nature, purpose, and so on, and where you have been talking about gifts rather than people or some subject rather than people, and translate those main headings by using, let's say for the first six months when you're getting used to it, there are other ways of doing it, but using the words God and you in each of the major points. Use the words God and you, and you'll begin to think in those terms. It's not what God did with David and Abraham that's really significant, though that was tremendous. It's what God is doing in you, the congregation today, you want to say to people. And when you say God gave you gifts, you turn to the passage. And the boys in the back row who are saying, me, gifts, what do you mean? God gave me gifts. You say, oh, yeah, you, even you boys in the back row, let me show you. And then you exposit the scriptures. But they come to that exposition with an orientation. They come wanting to know about those gifts that God has given to them. They come to see what God has to say to them about this matter. Not just abstractly talking about the giving of gifts and how God used to act back in the days when the Corinthians were on the scene. You see, we need to preach to people about themselves in relationship to God and their neighbors. I say that over and over because I want to drill that into you and your thinking. Now, <clears throat> when you preach, I'd like to turn to two passages and look at those passages with you because they are statements that the Apostle Paul made, the first one in the fourth chapter of Colossians, statements he made about preaching. In Colossians 4, if I can find it here, here we are. He says in verse 3, praying at the same time also about us, that God may open a door for the word to speak about the secret of Christ because of which I am in bonds, so that I may proclaim it clearly as I ought to. There is an obligation to preach clearly. Now, I don't know where it ever came from, but some preachers seem to have the notion in their minds that if you can be a bit hazy or obscure, 
then people will think you profound. That is terrible. <clears throat> there is no place for obscurity in the preaching of God's Word. Paul says that even I, the Apostle Paul, need the prayers of the Colossian church so that I may be able to preach clearly as I ought to. If you don't see an obligation to preach clearly, if you don't say as I ought to and work toward that end in all your preaching, there's something going to be missing in what you do. At one time, <clears throat> I <clears throat> was studying at Temple University in the same semester about modern and contemporary theology, and we had to read the two-volume work by Tillich, who was the last liberal theologian of any note, since they don't have any anymore. And <clears throat> at the same time, in another class, I was reading the sermons of Tillich, and studying how he preached. And it was a very interesting experience because as we lumbered through those two volumes where every word was obtuse, where every phrase was, was, had to be labored over, I began to think, my, what a difficult book. This and the next volume is to read. But then when I was reading his sermons, they were as lucid, as clear as anything you'd ever want to read. Wrong, but clear. <laughs> I hope that's clear. They were like those glass-bottom boats down in Florida where you could see the fish swimming and they looked like you could reach down and grab them, but they're really 10 or 15 feet below because the water is clear and the, the boats are clear and everything's so clear you couldn't misunderstand. And it occurred to me, here's a man who had the capability of writing in a way that was absolutely clear, and he chose not to do so over here when he wrote his theology. Now, I have no right or ability to read his heart. I don't know what led to that choice. It's not my business to decide. But I could note the difference very uh, emphatically during that semester. And it seems to me that there are people who do make choices about this matter. There is no choice but one that I may preach clearly as I ought to. But then there's another comment of the Apostle Paul at the end of the book of Ephesians, where now he's talking about preaching again and asking the saints to pray for him once more and asking them to pray about his preaching. And if the Apostle Paul, incidentally, had to ask the church to pray about his preaching that it might be clear, you and I ought to be asking our congregations to pray about our preaching, too. We need it far more, I'm sure, than the Apostle himself. But in verse 19, this is what he says, Pray for me, that I may be given the right words to say, 
when I open my mouth, to make known the secret of the good news boldly, for which I am an ambassador with a chain, that I may speak boldly as indeed I should. Paul saw an obligation to be clear in what he had to say so that nobody could ever misunderstand the truth of God, whether it be the gospel or whether it be some other truth that grows out of that good news. Nobody should ever misunderstand. I have not been accused very often of being hazy. I've been accused of everything else under the sun, but I'm thankful that people do get what I'm saying, whether they agree with it or not. But here is one that's very difficult for all of us, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Parousia is an interesting word, the word for boldness. It means to speak straightforwardly without any fear of consequences. And probably there is as much difficulty today in the churches from preachers who preach out of fear than for almost any other reason. They think about Mrs. So-and-so down there in row four, who sits there always waiting just to make sure that you don't speak about that particular subject which is her concern. You step on that subject and she takes off like a rocket. And then there's Mr. So-and-so who has four buttons, any one of which, if you push them, you're going to hear about it. And Mr. So-and-so is closely related to so many families in the church that if he got his dander up, probably they'd all walk out, including the people with so much money who give all the time. And there are preachers who come into the pulpit with those considerations on their hearts, and they trim their messages. I hope you're not going to be men like that. I hope you're going to be men who will fiercely and boldly, I did not say unkindly, but who will clearly and fiercely proclaim, fear, uh, fear, boldly proclaim the word of God without fear. Men who will stand up for what God has to say and declare the entire counsel of God. All things in this scripture are necessary for life and godliness, and we must proclaim all of them. There are not parts of the Bible which are important and other parts not important, but it is all God's inerrant word, and it is beneficial to God's people to know all of it. If you will read the book of Acts carefully, you will notice that this word parousia runs from beginning to end throughout the book of Acts. Indeed, it ends on that very note. Paul was in his own rented quarters preaching the kingdom of God boldly, it says. And then in Acts 4 in particular, I would like to mention to you that you have the preacher's prayer, what we might call the preacher's prayer, where they pray, Lord, give us all the boldness that is necessary to preach your word.
that word necessary. And here in Ephesians, as I ought to, shows that there is an obligation not only to be clear, but an obligation to be bold in our preaching. Now, sometimes people translate the word bold into the word nasty. Sometimes they translate it into the word to be sort of pushy. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about fearless preaching. We're talking about not considering the consequences that might come to you as a result of preaching God's truth. Not everybody is ready to receive everything immediately. Sometimes you have to give things a little bit at a time, all that they're able to receive at that moment, and then build on that in days to come. But you must not so think about that matter that you rationalize yourself into never preaching the difficult messages of God's Word that some people react to in a nasty way. You must preach the whole counsel of God boldly, as God says here. Now, there are four things that your people should go away with when they leave a message. Maybe six, maybe ten, but at least four. And the first of those is the understanding of that passage and its intention by the Holy Spirit. They should know that that's what God is saying in that passage. That's where exposition comes to the fore. You see, if you just simply get up and talk about a subject or talk about the Scriptures in such a way that you do not open those Scriptures so that people can see in the Bible itself that that's what God is saying, you lose all the authority of the Word. They just simply say, ah, oh, that's that old preacher again. He's got those ideas in his mind, and he keeps hounding on those things. And, oh, that's what he says. I have my opinion. Somebody else has his. And that's just the preacher. But if you will so open the Word of God to people by explaining it and showing what its intention was and what it's all about, that they see that that's what God is saying, that this is God's message and not yours. You're just a delivery boy. Then... It has force and it has authority. That's the first thing that people should go away with. They should have an understanding of what God is saying in the Scriptures. And that's very important because a sermon is a place where you bring people face to face with God in His Word, where you bring people to confront God as He confronts them through these words. And the second thing they need to go away with is what they need to believe or do or think in such concrete terms that they can put it into effect. They understand that this is going to change their lives. All preaching is for a purpose of change, either to make people believe something they never believed before, to disbelieve something that they wrongly thought to be true, to go out and do something that they're not doing, but that God requires them to do, but you are there to change people's lives. You're not preaching to the angels. 
You're preaching to a congregation in front of you who have problems and difficulties, who are sinners, who are struggling with their marriages and their families and their jobs and their difficulties that they confront in their own lives and so on. And they need to make the changes that will honor God and make them sturdy and strong in the faith. And so you're there to change people. And they should go away knowing what the change is, knowing that it's possible, knowing precisely what it is that God requires of them. And beyond that, you ought to give them some how-to. Now, Bible-believing people are great on the what-to, but for the most part, they're stinko when it comes to the how-to. We just don't help people to get it in gear. And an awful lot of people fall through the cracks right there. You've all heard the expression, dead wood. All right. Well, a lot of that wood lying around on the pews isn't really dead. It's just asleep. And it needs to be awakened. You know, when I began counseling, I began to realize that a lot of people have good intentions, but they don't know how to put them into practice. Uh, people do things in counseling that they don't do ordinarily in preaching. When you preach, very rarely, I guess, if ever, uh, you, have, you would have someone stand up in the pew and say, Wait a minute, preacher! I don't understand how I can do that. Please tell me how. They don't do that. They just sit there and mm -hmm, think about it. And uh, they think, well, you know, I don't know, I don't know even where to begin. Or maybe they get all excited and determined to do whatever it is that the Word of God that you've been preaching to them about says that they should do, and they, they go out with great enthusiasm, and they're going to do it, but they don't even know where to begin. And so they make some effort, and they fall flat on their faces, and they make another effort, and they fall flat again, and pretty soon they give up. Well, later on, they hear somebody else talk about it or read an article or read their Bibles or something, and they get all excited about it and want to do it again, and... They don't know where to begin, and they don't know how to get it into gear, so they fall flat again, and eventually they give up. And they say, maybe Paul can do it, but I'm not Paul. And they quit, and they go to sleep on the pews. Well, in counseling, people do stop you. They say, whoa, whoa, how do I do that? They ask you those questions. And every preacher needs to counsel so that he is stopped in his tracks and made to think about that. You need to do that. You need to be thinking about how a person can get the truth of God actually into his life, how he can knead it into the dough of actual living and put it into practice. When I began to think about that in counseling, as people would stop me and say, how do you do it? I realized that that was a great problem. And when they began to get the how-to, they started to change. Things began to happen. People's lives began to be transformed because they could actually put the Word of God into effect day by day with the how-to. You say, where do you find any how-to in the Bible? Where have you been? Haven't you read the Sermon on the Mount? <clears throat> it's full of it. After he gets through the Beatitudes and the salt and the light, everything that Jesus exhorts those people to do he gives them not only the how-to, but first of all, the how-not-to. He says, when you pray, do not pray as, there's the how-not-to, do not pray as the hypocrites who want to be seen for their 
their long prayers out on the street corners and so on. But when you pray, here comes the how-to. You go into your closet and pray privately, and God will hear you and reward you openly. When you pray, do not pray like the hypocrites. There's the how not to, who think that they're heard for their much praying. Over and over around the prayer wheels, it goes past the ticker. They prayed the prayer another time. No. When you pray, here comes the how-to. Pray after this manner, our Father which art in heaven. The Lord's Prayer is how-to. When you fast, do not anoint your face and go around in front of people and let everybody see that you're a holy guy. you got this smear on your head. But no, that's the how-not-to. Here's the how-to. You anoint your forehead and then wash your face. And God who sees it in secret, that's all that really counts will reward you in his time and place and way and so on. All the way through the rest of it, there's the how not to and the how to, the how not to and the how to. Now, Norman Vincent Peale was not my ideal preacher. But I, I used to get on, I was on his mailing list because he had free sermons that he would send. And I was studying all kinds of sermons from everybody. And one of the interesting things that I noted was that Norman Vincent Peale not only was good on illustrations, but he was full of how-to. Yes, he was. He was full of it. Six steps. (laughs) Six steps to happiness, four steps to peace. All how-to titles and sermons, a lot of them had the word how-to in them. Uh, It might be uh, four steps out of Shintoism to peace that he would talk about. And he did actually literally talk about Shintoism, for example, as, as something that Christians ought to adopt. So what he said was not important, but the fact that people crowded out that place in Marble Collegiate Church week after week and had to get tickets to find a seat throughout a long, long time that he preached there indicates that people are desperately seeking to know how to do something. So when you get up and you preach, and you say, congregation, don't just read your Bibles, study your Bibles, and people down there say, amen. And then they go out all excited and enthusiastic about studying their Bibles. But they don't know any more about studying the Bible now than they did before. So they sit down and they, uh, they get all uh, intrigued about doing this. And they turn to Genesis 1-1 and they go, kind of strain a little bit. That study is over against reading. And uh, they begin to read until they get to so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And they throw it aside and they say, I'm just reading again. They don't realize that that's kind of like the telephone directory. You don't sit down to read the telephone directory. You use it for the purposes that uh, it was designed to achieve. And uh, you turn to the genealogies and so on for those purposes that they are designed to achieve. You don't just sit down and read the genealogy for your edification. But nobody ever taught them that. So they don't know how to read their Bible. Well, they try again, and they fail, and they try again, and they fail, and finally they give up. They can't study their Bibles because nobody ever told them how to. So when you get up and you say, don't just read your Bibles, 
study your Bibles, and everybody gets excited about this, and they're convinced they should study it. Then you add to that statement, and if you don't know how to study your Bible, you be here tonight. And for the next 12 weeks, prior to our evening service, as we start tonight a How to Study Your Bible series. You need to give them, or at least point to, some kind of ways and means of getting it into gear. You can't always give it all. You can't give the How to Study Your Bible series in the, the sermon itself, perhaps. But you can point them to where they can get the answers. And if they're excited about it, they can come and they can learn how to do it. So what we're trying to say here is to make your sermons sermons that get change accomplished in people's lives. Where people don't just get all stirred up on Sunday, go out and lose it on Monday, but where people begin on Sunday to do all week what they learned that God said they ought to do. We want change in people's lives. Change that blesses them, but more so change that honors our Lord as they go out to work and as they live in their families and neighborhoods. And that's the kind of preaching we've been talking about here during these days. One last note. Along with that boldness, we want to talk about authority. There's very little authority in preaching these days. It used to be that the pastor was called the parson, which meant the person in his community. He was looked up to. Today, you know how people think about preachers. You just have to read the books, look at the television, or whatever it is, to see how preachers are caricatured and characterized by the world out there. He no longer has authority, and some of that is due to the preacher himself. He has not preached boldly. He has not preached authoritatively. Now, when I say boldness and authority, I don't mean nasty, as I said. You need to preach with authority the wonderful truths of God, the marvelous grace of God. You need to preach with all the authority of God's Word that once a person has come to Jesus Christ, he not only is saved, but he's saved for all eternity, and the blessings of God are all available to him. You need to preach with authority all the great things. People sometimes, when they think of boldness and authority, think only of the nasty and hard things. But you need to have authority in your preaching. And when people get up and they say, I want to share, that is about as weak a statement as I know. Share. Nobody ever nailed anybody to the door for sharing. It doesn't happen. Pie. And I share my pie with you. What do you get? The whole pie? Not on your life. You get a slice. I don't want anybody to share the gospel. I want him to give me the whole gospel. This sharing business, <laughs> this sharing business, you keep doing that, I'm going to go past the hour. <clears throat> this sharing business is really 
something that came out of the world, out of the magic circles in the, in the uh, pagan schools where they try to break down the faith of the home that was taught to the children and broaden them to all sorts of views. And we ought not to be talking in that kind of language. It's gotten so that the word feel, which is also another weak word, that has been spread over everything else, is used instead of words that have to do with conviction and belief. I've had people say to me, Prof, what do you feel about such and such a subject? And I say, lousy. <laughs> no, they say, no, 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 I want to get your, they can't think of another word, I want to get your feelings on that subject. I, say, I, I did gave, give you my feelings, but uh, I would love to do something other than emote. Uh, could I give you my convictions, my beliefs, or something of that sort, rather than just express my feelings? You see, you're nailed to the door for convictions, for beliefs, for proclamation. We don't share, we proclaim the word of the living God as men who have been ordained by his church to bring that message to his people for their blessing. We need to reestablish authority in the church of Jesus Christ and not act as though we were so timid about teaching God's word that, well, you know, we're insignificant in the community. When you say something in God's name, you better be sure of what you're saying. But when you say it, when you say it in his name, thus says the Lord, then you speak with authority. To share means everybody has a piece of the pie and I have no real reason for being up here other than you. We might just swap off any old day. But you do have a reason for being in the pulpit when God calls you and ordains you and gives you the authority to preach his word as his herald. You're not to get up there and share, you're to herald the truth of God. Well, it has been a distinct pleasure to be with you. And I hope that as you take some of these things home with you, you think about them, pray about them, and try to put them into practice, that you too will be sufficient servants of the living God, the way the Apostle Paul said that God made him and those around him to be. It, the ministry isn't easy. The ministry has difficult times, and it has joys, and it has sorrows. But there is nothing more important in all this world than God's word which you proclaim. Never, never do anything to lessen the authority and the clarity of that book. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we come before you today at the end of these lectures, we are well aware that we are not sufficient for these things. And with the apostle we cry out, who is sufficient? But then with the apostle we also are able to say, God has made us sufficient ministers of his word. Oh Lord, make us to be that. Keep us true to that book and not to compromise its teaching for any man and may we make its message as clear as we know how and preach with authority the message of this book to our people today. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, for whose sake we have met together here in this hour. Amen.